Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Traverse Theatre Edinburgh. We now join the theatre's literary officer and your host, Jennifer Williams. Hello and welcome to another edition of our ongoing series of Travcast interviews with playwrights in which we talk with playwrights about their current work and also explore some of their thoughts about the art of playwriting and the part it plays in their lives. It's my great pleasure to welcome the playwright David Gregg to our press office this afternoon. David is a Scottish playwright and theatre director, and though he was born in Edinburgh, and this is totally news to me, I was excited to read this, um, he was brought up in Nigeria. I never knew that. I'm going to ask you more about (laughs) that later. He studied drama at Bristol University, and he's written for the Royal Court Theatre, the Royal National Theatre, the National Theatre of Scotland, the Royal Shakespeare Company, and of course the Traverse. Um, You currently have two plays on in the festival, and one of those is called Monster in the Hall, and the other is The Strange Undoing of Prudencia Hart. And actually curious first of all to to ask you how you managed to get two plays on at once in the festival at the Travers. well um greed partly <laughs> but the the well really they're, they're both plays that there was an intention that they might end up at the festival but mm-hmm. we in fact first did them in different contexts so Monster in the Hall began in a school's tour uh, last November where it was created to tour around schools uh, in Fife. Um, uh, Very small scale touring. But we always knew that if we felt happy with it, we would then develop it to bring it to the Travis and the Festival, and we were lucky enough that a slot became available and we could do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Prudentia Heart was created as a rural touring show for National Theatre of Scotland uh, to tour the borders, um, which, again, w- we always knew that if we liked, if we thought it worked, we would take it forward to the festival. But but we but it, it was nice for me because it's it's a way of being free to experiment without some of the pressure of debuting at the fringe, which I have done plenty times before and is great. But sometimes it can be a little bit overwhelming. Of course, uh, yeah. And with Monster in the Hall, which is a fantastic piece, it's got... I should correct oh. you, by the way, that, in fact, I also have two other plays on at the, the <gasps> French. But these, I know. <laughs> but these are... Um, the Yellow Moon, the previous show I did with Tag, uh-huh. uh, is being done by a company from Bristol University at Sea Venue, and Caligula, which is a translation of a Camus play, which I did about 10 years ago, is being done by another company at uh, at C Venue of young... Uh, I think a student company, I'm, I'm not uh-huh. sure. Uh, neither of which I've seen, but I obviously encourage i encourage people to go (laughs) check them out oh fantastic yes do go go have a look at those i'll be going to see them um do do you still have close connections with bristol no that that it's completely uh separate but random that that has happened Uh well it's not random because bristol has a very very good drama department and always Mm -hmm. has had which is why i was there so i imagine that you know it's it's through that that uh that, that that they've come to you know, mm-hmm. but th- no, I know nothing. I don't know nothing about the company or anything. <laughs> like that. Um, and 
uh, yeah, so back to Monster in the Hall. Um, it's got four folks in it, and as in a discussion earlier, I heard you saying um, it's kind of there were certain restrictions put on what would be available for the performance. So um, there is it much in the way of props? There's, there's nothing. There's, uh, we use four microphones. Is all we have, um, and there is music. But apart from that, there's no lights. There is no set. I mean, when I say there's no lights, it's not in the dark. It means that <laughs> the house lights are on uh-huh. and they never change, that we don't use any lighting. Uh, the reason for that is the context of the creation was uh, to tour to schools and the director, Guy Holland, had a very clear and specific notion. He wanted a show that you could he could bring four actors to the school and they would literally enter the classroom, push the desks to the side and be able to perform the show. And that is what we've aimed to do. And it Mm. creates a fascinating and I find really fruitful demand on the playwright because you then have to um, do everything with language and performance. Mm -hmm. And the director has a challenge as well, and the actors. So the challenge becomes what becomes exciting about the show is how can you tell this story with such limited resources and the tension between that makes the show come alive, I think. Yes, because it's often, we've talked about this before, but it's often those constraints that can, as you said earlier, allow a certain liberation in the Absolutely, and in fact I can't really write without constraints now. Mm-hmm. I, find, I find it's just, you know, I need to have something that is the restriction, something that is the problem. Mm-hmm. before. And if I don't have it, I'll make one up, I'll mm-hmm. invent a problem. And the uh, something I thought was exciting about Monster in the Hall was the use of a kind of mouth-made sound effects that yeah. happens throughout. Yeah. And is that something that you had thought about while you were writing the piece, or did that come from the director? No, it's entirely from it? them. I mean, any, if anybody you know is able to purchase the text, the play text, what they'll see is that I I, I lay it out without character name, mm. without stage direction. It, it's just given to you as text on the page so every th- and the reason i do that is so that the company has to find a language that they use and so they began and and because in it in the story of these these the girl group the duckettes the girl group who sort of <laughs> sing i suppose the heroine's thoughts a little bit or they're sort of a kind of like an inner slightly critical voice um imagined a bit like the supremes or or the the shangri-las or one of these sort of 1960s girl groups sort of uh, and that led them to the microphones, I think, which mm. in turn led them to, well, when I say, you know, there's a motorcycle crash or, you know, how do you do that? Well, they do it by making the noise purely between themselves and the microphone, and it mm. becomes an extremely inventive way of having a set when you have no set. A door opening becomes a noise that you make into a microphone uh, uh, something falling down, some uh, a siren—you know—all of these things uh, can be conjured. It's one. I mean, it's just so exciting, and it—it, it, I think, it plays that game of leaving space for the audience to imagine, rather than just making them look at something. And and suddenly, I think that's what starts to activate it as well as that you, as an audience, are hearing things and then suddenly you're seeing it in your head rather than just looking at a set on the stage. I think so. I, I, I really like, more and more, I like to give the audience that space. Mm. Because in, um, actually, in Prudence, The Stranger Doing Prudencia Heart, I mean, it's it, where it's playing here, it's set in a really magnificent hall, so the space itself is fabulous. But there isn't 
much of a set in that either. There's, there's there really? almost none. And and in fact, the set is where you perform it, by which I mean we've done it in a very small pub in uh, in uh, in Selkirk. Um, we've done it in a sort of Victorian theatre bar in Glasgow. Uh, you know, and and up to a point, it can be could be performed in any sort of pub function room or pub or anywhere with a bar really. And um, and everywhere you do it will be different as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, that, and that's part of the conception of it, I guess. Mm. And and something else that, for me, because I have an interest in poetry, was really exciting for me about Prudencia Hart is that um, there is this um, sort of ballad um, inspiration of it and ballad verse form that goes throughout a lot of the play. And I think one of the things I found most moving about it is that there's a really... I don't want to give too much away, but there's an exciting thing that happens when you fall from verse into prose, yeah. and it's very meaningful to the narrative of yes, the piece. Yes. And actually, I think, is poetic in and of itself in that it seems to me it equates with time and timelessness. Yeah. And it represents, uh, well, it's a period of time when Prudencia is kind of in an eternity. She's in something mm. that has no borders and no limits. And and in order to escape from that, in a sense, she has to refind the poem. Almost, the she form, has to find yeah. the form, and that probably does reflect a little what I was saying before about restriction. That mm-hmm. for me, restriction is liberation, and 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 poetry and the specificities of form that poetry require are I find them liberatory and and again more and more I'm drawn towards that I I suppose I had quite a big moment as a writer you always go from um, uh, revelation to revelation I suppose and each revelation maybe sustains you for three or four plays and then something else comes along so you can never say this is how I am now Mm. but my most recent set of um, revelations I suppose was that was to do with language and that actually I love language. I really like it. And I think I'd always been a little embarrassed about that and, <laughs> and I always felt that maybe I should write a bit more naturalistically in the way that people actually speak and that mm. it was a flaw in my plays was that people didn't... They, they, they spoke slightly heightened poetic language. And mm. I just had a sudden... I was particularly thinking about David Mamet and his encouragement that we should always write... Um, you know, the way that people speak, kind of damaged, slightly wounded, inarticulate speech. And I just suddenly had this moment where I went, I can't, I can't do it, I can't. Mm. I'm obviously not good at that, I just aren't, I'm not. And I really like words. So what I'm now <laughs> going to do is I'm going to write the most words. So instead of the thing of can you cut, cut and not have words, I'm going to do the exact opposite. I'm going to throw <laughs> hundreds of thousands of words down and they're going to be the most poetic words I can find. And, mm. and if there's a way of doing it that's more um, heightened, I'm going to do that. And if, mm. there's, if it's more abstract in form, I'm going to do that. I'm going to hurl myself in the opposite direction. And that was the great liberation for me that resulted in a whole ream of work that I'm still doing. So that was like Midsummer. It was also Prudencia. It's also all of these, all of right. these shows have, have come from, from that impulse. Um, which I think was always in my work. I, mean, I think if you look back at it, it always has been heightened and poetic. It's just I've sometimes 
sort of held that back a bit and this time I, I let it go let it go completely. Yeah. And I think interestingly in that in that way that I'd sort of encourage um, maybe young writers or new writers to keep in mind, I think when you do, you know, there are these sort of rules about what you, sh- that seem to come across about what you should and shouldn't do in writing. And maybe you might read in some book that you shouldn't write in heightened poetic language, but actually if it's right for you and if you do it wholeheartedly, then the audience goes with it. And and when I think of those plays that you're mentioning, the funny thing is that I think of them as poetic and beautiful, but I don't think of the characters in them as speaking in like an abstract or heightened way. They're totally, the the things they're talking about and the emotions they're conveying are so tangible yeah. and real that, that it seems really normal to me that they're speaking in verse. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I, but I think that is that point about, certainly for young playwrights, there is a very difficult thing because, of course, there are, one one must engage with the rules of the craft in order to be able to find your own voice but your own voice will be the thing that you break it'll be the rule that you break mm. that that determines who you are as a writer the trouble is you that's easy to say it's difficult in a sense the rule breaking is never the difficult bit it's always the restriction mm. and it's really it tends to be that young writers need the restriction more than they need the the permission to break the rule i suppose but yeah there is this balance that and certainly anything i would discard oh i mean this is seems like a flippant thing to say but i would discard anything you read in a book about playwriting <laughs> but not because it's bad i mean it's it's Books about playwriting are are helpful and full of helpful advice and mm. interesting thoughts and ideas, but but there is no rule. There is no rule, mm. and, and I'm sure a book about playwriting would tell you that as well. Anyway, I'm not yeah, yeah. I'm not trying to do those authors out of their perfectly reasonable and and in fact probably inspirational um, point. I'm just sort of saying to the young playwright in a way that is different from cinema, where there probably are rules that you probably do need to have the second act turn around and the page 58 reveal or whatever it might be and maybe that does work and maybe that's very important in the craft of cinema but it but it's not in theater it's what you do differently it's what you break that Mm. makes you interesting in the theater and so that's what you have to find you have to try all the rules out and see which ones work for you and which don't Mm. and something um something that you mentioned earlier and it's something i think as i've got to know your work and you a bit better i i think is one of the things that really impresses me about your work is um that it seems to me that you are in your work in a really authentic way and what you had said earlier was that there seems to be a trick in writing that you you have to expose your life in the writing but you have to not let yourself know you're yes. <laughs> exposing it while you're The metaphor writing. I used in the talk earlier on or the panel discussion was I said it's like stripping mm. and that you have to take your clothes off on stage. A play is always the author taking their clothes off on stage and and, and that's something that you... Um, it's terrible to do that. You uh, Emotionally, nobody wants to be naked and exposed like that. Uh it's it's genuinely scary and but at the same time that is what the audience have paid for they've paid to come and see people take their clothes off on stage they haven't paid <laughs> to come and see people nicely dressed in a smart suit or a lovely summer dress mm. because that's what they see out in the street that's what that that we need to see 
the inside, the difficult, the shameful, the embarrassing, the taboo, the all of the things. That's why we're in the theatre. We, we must be seeing that which is slightly breaking the rules. Mm. So the author has... You know, there's an, a thing I think that was said by Scott Fitzgerald where he said, that, and I'm paraphrasing appallingly here, but he said something like that moment when you think to yourself, oh, no, I can't say that. There's probably a story there. And I think that's absolutely right. The moment that you have a thought and think, oh, no, I, I can't think that. Why did I think that? That will be That's your play. You have to pursue it and you have to do it. But we are not psychopaths mostly, and therefore we can't just be fearless and careless of what people think of us. So if we know too much about our stripping, all of our instincts will come in as humans and we will try and cover up again. So the writer who says, I know what I'll do is I'll reveal my anxiety about sex, immediately your conscious mind will start to interpose, make it... And you'll think you're taking your clothes off, but actually you're wearing a rather nifty bodysuit underneath. And the audience <laughs> will smell it. So you've got to get to a point where your conscious mind... You say to your conscious mind, no, 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 don't worry, honestly, I'm just writing... Um, I'm just writing a play for children. A silly, or I'm writing a silly poem. It's a silly poem. Mm. It's the silliest thing. It's completely, you know, it's laughable, frankly laughable. And uh, don't worry about it, conscious mind. And conscious mind goes, oh, fine, right, okay. It's a, so it's a poem. It's a mm. border ballad poem. Oh, good, oh, fine. That sounds great. And then, while your conscious mind is busy focusing on the form or the whatever, your unconscious mind is then really letting rip. Mm. And, and so then the play comes out. And, and as I said again in the panel, it's only five years later that I then go and see perhaps a remount of the play by some other student company like Yellow Moon or whatever, and suddenly I'm looking at it and I cannot believe how naked I am on stage, mm. that I'm... I, I'm, I'm horrified, and I actually feel burning shame sometimes. Not at my lines or my anything, I don't mean that, but at how nakedly I have revealed the issues and complexities of my life to a public audience. Mm. Um, and, and then I reflect backwards that they must all have seen, you know, that they must all have <laughs> known or something. But it's, it's it, you know, it proves to me that I could not... That's the conscious mind going... What? <laughs> you told me it was, you know, a silly play about the borders. And, mm. uh, you know, so you have to trick yourself, basically. Yeah. And, of course, the thing about tricking yourself is that you learn your tricks. So you have to trick yourself anew each time. You have to find a new method each time. And the, uh, though it does sound like that, it's often the constraints of things like form or structure yeah. that can be helpful. Or time is the other one, that. the constraint mm -hmm. of time. Uh, I very often put myself in a position where um, the show is going to go on and the theatre is booked and the actors are going are, are hired. And so if I don't... That's what happened with Prudencia. Mm. Prudencia was written all in the month of its rehearsal. Literally, I was writing what they would rehearse in the next two hours. Wow. And all I had to do was stay ahead of them. I had to give them enough... <laughs> just to stay ahead uh -huh. that meant that at that point conscious mind was so unbearably terrified <laughs> of the fact that if if nothing was written a group of six people and more in fact would be standing in a room going i'm 
I'm sorry, what, what can, is there something we can do now? Or do you have anything for us to do? And, and the social horror of that was so appalling mm. <laughs> that he sort of agreed to settle in the background and just let whatever <laughs> came out, came out. Um, and, and that's how, you know, that's mm, how it yeah. emerged. So time can be a very useful one. Yeah. Just put yourself in position. I was thinking there's a lovely singer-songwriter I like called Darren Heyman, and he did a project called January Songs where he set himself the challenge of writing and recording a new song every day in January this year. Wow. And then he brought out the album of 31 songs to download them. And, you know, some of them are a bit mediocre, but some are brilliant, right? And, and you know, what I love about that is you know that that song could not have... It would never have come into being if he hadn't set himself that berserk challenge to sit down and do it completely anew that day. And I think there's something... Sometimes it's a really useful tool that artists or writers forget is the tool of just time, you know, just make yourself do it. Give yourself a... Not even a deadline. Put yourself in a stupid position where you have to do it or you'll be humiliated in some other awful way. And I think that um, it just makes me think of that notion of originality being... um, I think something really key about what we're talking about as well, about that being able to expose yourself but not let yourself know you're exposing yourself. But that, And, and I think for me, when I think about the world, word originality, I always think of the word origin and that, that there's a sense that I think if you can trust or use whatever mechanisms you need to, to get to that place, that where is the origin of this writing coming from and just trust that place within you that maybe you'll be able to get closer there's, to that. There's a, this is, I'm going to apologise in advance okay. for pretension and then I'll carry <laughs> on. I apologise in advance. <laughs> the, I've done some, uh, a fair amount of work in the Middle East and I became very, very interested in uh, Arabic culture, Arabic mm. language. There's something that came out of that that has obsessed me, which is... There is. There are two words, and I'll pronounce them very badly. I apologise to any people who speak Arabic who are listening, but one word is batan, and the other is zahir, or thahir, I think. And these, one of them means interiority, and the other means exteriority. But they are, they are, they they mean much more than that, and they 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 are like two sides of a piece of paper. They cannot be separated. They're all, you know, they they are the opposite of each. They are each other. Mm. Um, uh, Exteriority is concrete, it's touchable, perceivable. Interiority is not perceivable, not touchable. And there are a number of pairings of words like this in Arabic, and they all add up to God. God is always the both of them. So Batan and Zaha are add up to God. Now, what I love about this is it, for me, it captures something about writing, but in particular writing for the theatre. You begin with interiority the writer's interiority uh, something unperceivable it is not even in words it's untangible it's unconcrete but it is it is a uh hidden it's all of those things it is inside as i speak to you i'm sort of crabbing my hand and pointing it at my chest <laughs> that's mm. the gesture i can think of mm. to describe what i mean um the writer then has to sort of turn that into the other side of the piece of paper it has to become tangible and concrete then the group of actors work and the, the everyone works on the tangible the concrete the spoken word the gesture the set the costume when it 
then comes to the audience, it's reconverted mm. to interiority again, to intangible, inconceivable, you know, in unperceivable. Now, that might just describe the journey, but why it's important is the writers and artists can only attend to the concrete. They cannot attend to the interiority. So when you work on the play, you can't say, um, could you do it more, uh, c- could you say that line so that, it, so that it means more the imminence of death? You, you can't do that. That's not concrete. That's that's the realm of the interior. That's Barton. You have to let... But you can say, can you say that line more loudly? Mm. Can you say that line faster? Can you wear a red dress when you say that line? And if you're a very sensitive director, it may be that when you s- when someone says it loudly, you notice your interior feelings are stirred. So that's a good guide for you Mm. (laughs) as to where you should make the concrete work. But a great mistake I think that writers make is they try to attend to the interior when really they need to be... Don't don't worry about the interior. Attend to the concrete and let the interior be what it is and you don't know what it is. And it it might be something frightening to you. I mean, who Mm. knows? Very often I write plays that when I look at them with a critical mind, I think that play says something that I'm not sure I even want to believe i mean Mm. you know i uh and that's that's right that's how it should be i think Mm. and i think we're just about out of time um but just as a last thought on that it it was just to to say something else i was thinking about the function of theater in society since man has been making theater and telling stories in a group sort of form um i think it this ties into something else you're talking about about um, theater that maybe has a message in it, or um, even as as far as kind of agitprop or propaganda theater. But that I think when I look at a lot of your plays, um, I'm not sure if I'd say that that they have messages in that. You know, there is a moral at the end of the mm. story. But I do tend to feel like there is a kind of um, in a really beautiful way that trusts the audience but that I do feel like you have something to say and I was thinking about that kind of the great sort of ancient tradition of theatre and storytelling in that it it is a kind of it being a sort of vehicle to pass on teachings from generation to generation and that I think it's something we maybe fear or steer away from nowadays but unless you're sort of being paid to write a piece about things but but that actually that's something maybe um, if you do it the right way, that's something to be sort of proud of. I, I, I think it's, you know, it's complex to negotiate without, because you certainly don't want to patronise an audience or anything like that, but I think, I think you shouldn't begin a play unless you have a, a question that's, that's a, a pretty big question mm. <laughs> that you don't know the answer to. Generally, you, the author, do not know the answer. And then if you do that, and your writing really does engage with that, inevitably you're going to have something to say because you're going to explore and try to come up, you know, with answers maybe or or even further questions, but you will do it. And I I couldn't think of beginning a play unless I had something of that in my mind, some some question. Again, I'm going to lose who did this quote, but (laughs) there is a... 
Okay, I, I don't know, but I'll say <laughs> it. Uh, a writer I read said every new play should teach us something new about humanity and something new about theatre. Wow. And I think that's a, there is a really important thing that you you to engage to s- the seed of a new play should be a question about what it is to be human that that is bothering you the writer not just plucked off the shelf something that Mm. is your tugging at your being and the other side is you should then say to yourself now can i do it where everyone acts upside down and they're all (laughs) suspended from the ceiling Or something like mm. that. Or so, I don't know what it is, but something... Or, and not, again, not plucked off the shelf. Because you've always loved shows where people are upside down. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Or because you, <laughs> you once saw your granny hanging upside down out of the loft and it was the most disturbing image you ever saw and so you're obsessed with it. But something new. Uh, and I think if you get both of those things, that's a satisfying experience for an audience. Oh, fantastic. Well, that's really, really fascinating and enlightening and exciting. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to speak to us today. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today. And I hope you all join us next time for another Travcast where you get to speak to wonderful playwrights about their work. Thanks a lot. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from the Traverse Theatre Edinburgh. For more information, please log on to www.traverse.co.uk.